0: Welcome to caregiving club on air. This podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self care solutions who seek expert advice and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well home design in our forever homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, and educator, a TV interviewer, host, and news commentator. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Welcome back to season two of Caregiving Club on Air. I'm your host, Sherry Snelling. And here at Caregiving Club, we have chosen a theme for 2022. And the theme is the year of living colorfully. You know, we've all been through a lot the last couple of years with the pandemic, which has turned our workplaces and our home environments upside down. And in fact, of you became first-time caregivers during this pandemic. And some of the surveys that we're seeing, including this one from Fidelity, which talked to working caregivers. So these are employees in the workplace who said they cannot live through another year like 2021, and we agree. There's been a lot of increase in caregiver burnout and emotional health issues, and that's something that we focus on a lot here at Caregiving Club. And so when we chose our theme of living colorfully, we thought about all the aspects of our lives, and you know, color is so important. There's a science behind color that we'll get into with some of our discussions, but it's really about everything that we do. So, when you think about how you should eat a little bit better, maybe more nutritiously, we always talk about eating the rainbow, eating colorful foods, which are going to include a lot of fruits and vegetables. But we also talk about The spectrum of color in terms of our moods and our emotions. We know that colors are assigned to a lot of different emotions. And one of the things that we'll be doing at the end of this episode is our Me Time Monday wellness hack, which is going to be on yellow for happiness, because yellow is a color that typically brings happiness into our lives. But we also know that color and science play a part in well-home design. And this is an area that I'm really passionate about We know that our environments really have a role to play in our overall emotional, mental, and physical health, both for our homes, but also for the homes that we're helping our older loved ones to adapt to so that they can stay in their homes as long as possible. So all of this color becomes really important in terms of how we're looking at it and how it's influencing our lives. But in addition to the Me Time Monday wellness hack and the caregiver wellness headlines and news that we talk about here, and the Well Home Design news that we'll be continuing to bring to you, we also are very excited to have a great lineup this year of wonderful guests who are experts in their areas. And two of our favorites are on this particular episode. So our first guest is going to be Joan Neihall, who is the author of a new book called "Happy Is the New Healthy," which could not be a more perfect theme for Happy New Year and what we're all looking forward to in 2022. But Joan is a forensic psychologist, and so she's going to really talk about the science between what is it that makes us happier, and then how does being happier impact our overall health and well-being? And then our second expert is really focused on another theme, which is January, Financial Wellness Month. Now, financial wellness is one of the seven elements of our Me Time Monday program, so we're really excited to have... One of my favorite people and a real national expert on financial wellness, Cindy Hunsell, who is the founder and president of WISER, which is the Women's Institute for a Secure Retirement based in Washington, D.C. It's a nonprofit. And Cindy's going to be here to talk to us a little bit about the cost of caregiving, how to plan ahead a little bit better, but mostly about a new resource and tool that WISER has called the caregiver financial hub. It's wonderful. It's helpful. I really recommend it. We're going to have the link on our episode guide page. So you're going to want to check that out and stay tuned for our interview with Cindy. But first let's get to our caregiver wellness news. So welcome to our caregiver wellness news segment. And I wanted to start this year by giving our listeners real tips and real good source information around how to achieve our wellness goals. There's a recent article in the Wall Street Journal about caregiving, and it was a good article, and it talked about some resources. But I have to tell you, I'm starting to become a little cynical about all these articles that I see that say, you should sleep more, you should meditate, you should move more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all know that, right? I mean, caregivers aren't uneducated. They aren't uninformed. The question becomes, how do I do this? when I am juggling all of these balls. I mean, let's face it. We have a lot of responsibilities in our lives. A lot of stress has come into our life that still hasn't completely left with all of the things that we've gone through, through the pandemic and still trying to figure out school schedules and work from home and all these other things and the economy. And there's just a lot of stuff, right? Now, all of a sudden you add this extra ball, which is caring for an older parent or an older loved one. And the ball that's going to get dropped is the one that says me, which is how we actually created our Me Time Monday program. We wanted to figure out ways that we could give caregivers really easy, simple, but grounded in science steps to take that would help your wellness, that would help that self-care effort that we know that you want to spend time on, but you just don't have the time. And that's why a lot of the Me Time Monday stuff we do They're like five-minute little exercises that you can fit into your day and actually almost make them a habit, which is what is going to be coming across in my new book, which is the Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for a wonderful life. You're going to find all of this science, all of these good tips and resources and how to do it, which I think is really important. It's not the what, it's the how and the why. I always like to find out like when people say, well, you should sleep longer. Well, why? What does that mean? And we know that There's a lot of neuroscience reasons that clearing of the toxins in the brain and other issues that we have that help with our overall health, both from an emotional and mental health standpoint, but also from a physical health. So that's what the book's all about. That's what the wellness hacks are all about at the end of these episodes and a lot of the articles that I write on caregivingclub.com. But with that, I wanted to turn to some news headlines that are out there, which I think are really interesting. One is that Gallup, every year does the annual happiness survey. And this is a global survey that they actually survey countries to find out which countries have the happiest people. And they use an index, which is really interesting. I'm not going to get into the science. We're going to have a link to the report on our episode guide page, but they call it Wellbees, which are Well being adjusted life years, and this is how they actually assess these countries. So, of course, the Scandinavian countries always are at the top of the leader poll when it comes to these annual Gallup surveys, and no big changes here. Finland was number one, Denmark was number two, but number three was Switzerland, which is kind of new. Switzerland moved up a few ahead of the Netherlands and Norway and I think Iceland as well, but what's interesting about Switzerland, because it got me thinking, you know, Switzerland, as we know, kind of from a cultural standpoint, has always kind of taken a neutral posture on a lot of the issues that are out there, and some people feel like, no, you know, you've got to choose a team, you've got to choose a side, but I think in today's atmosphere, which is so charged with a lot of animosity, and I hate to say it, but even hatred, and I'm really confused by it, because listen... I have friends of all different kinds of backgrounds and all different kinds of political ideologies. And my hope is that the friendship is based on a lot more than that. And I think what we have to do is we have to just take the temperature down a little bit. One of the things that I think fuels this, of course, is cable news. And social media. You've heard me talk about this before. We cannot have a daily dose of this in our lives because it is going to create more depression. It's going to, a lot of the news headlines are, unfortunately, they're negative. So there's a lot of toxicity that comes with that. Listen, you need to stay informed and you need to be aware And you also need to know that when it's important, for instance, around election time, yes, you need to pay attention you need to really listen to the candidates and figure out who is going to best represent your interests, your values. But other than that, this daily dose of all of this stuff going on, it's really tearing us apart. And in fact, what it's doing is it's eating away at our soul instead of feeding our soul, which is what wellness is all about, finding ways that make us flourish and nourish and have inspiration and have hope and have happiness. So all I'm saying to you is think about it. If you're like me, you know, I've, got the news turned on a lot. I I listen to a lot of podcasts about news and I think that I want to stay informed and there's people I'm going to continue to follow, but I don't need a daily dose. It's usually the same thing over and over again. Anyway, I want to stay up on the news, but I just don't want it to dictate everything in my life. So hopefully I've shared a little bit with you on a couple of things to think about for 2022 that might help with our emotional wellness. Something else that I think is really interesting and I wrote an article about this. You can find it on caregivingclub.com, but it's called the U-shape of happiness. Now, this was a researcher, Jonathan Rauch, who actually created a paper called The Happiness Curve. Now, there's controversy about it because some people say, well, it's not completely evidence-based and there were some flaws in the methodology of the research, yada, yada, yada. But for the most part, it's kind of interesting because what Jonathan found, and it's been replicated, by the way, by other researchers out there. So there is some validity to it, is that in our 20s, we're relatively happy, right? I mean, this is before a lot of the responsibilities of life start, you know, having a family, having a mortgage, moving up in your job or your career or whatever. And again, all of these stressors that we kind of have faced, which are outside factors like a pandemic. But in your 20s, you're relatively happy. Then, unfortunately, as you get into midlife, That is when we go to our lowest levels of happiness, according to these researchers. That kind of makes sense, right? The midlife crisis. But it's also when, think about it, we do start having families. So there might be some issues there with raising children. There's certainly financial impacts to that. This is also a time in our careers where maybe we have moved up, we're climbing that ladder or whatever, but there's a lot of stress that comes with that. You're managing up and managing down which is very stressful on a lot of us. And particularly, I think with what's gone on in the workplace with the pandemic. And there's just things that are happening. We have a lot of responsibilities in life, a lot of them financial and, you know, January is financial wellness month. We're going to be talking to Cindy Hunsell in a couple of minutes, who's going to take us through all of those financial impacts, particularly of caregiving, which also happens, let's face it, in mostly our 40s and 50s. So that's when we're seeing this curve really dip low. Now, what happens though, is starting in our fifties and then going upwards into our sixties, seventies, and even early eighties, we're seeing this upward swing. So that's the U right in the U curve of happiness. And in fact, our happiness levels are at the peak when we are in our late 60s and 70s, and maybe even 80s if we've kept a lot of our health. I know health can certainly impact our overall mood and feelings of happiness. But I think it's really fascinating because I think most people would think, well, you're happier when you're in your 20s, right? But the actuality is we're happier later in life. Now, a lot of this has to do with, listen. We've been through the wars. We've survived. Okay? We're the warriors who have survived and now we have this wisdom and we like to volunteer and mentor and do things later in life that help pass this on to younger generations who might be feeling a little less resilience. We know that younger generations like Gen Z and millennials are surveying at higher rates of anxiety. And depression and feeling less resilient. So maybe we can pass some of that on to our younger generations. I think the other thing that's fascinating is that it's also a time of continued learning. You know, we never stop learning in our lives, and there's so many great resources out there right now to help with people who want to start an encore career or move into something new. And we can do a lot of that learning now online. I got my master's in my 50s. So you never stop learning and you never stop achieving, and wanting to have certain goals in life. And then I think the last piece, which I'm really fascinated by, is Dr. Laura Carsonson, who is at Stanford University. She actually has published numerous pieces and is known as the person who identified the socio-emotional selectivity theory, which is something gerontologists like myself study. And what That theory talks about is that as we get older, we start to prune our relationships. All right. So we're looking for quality, not quantity. And what we do is we start to evaluate people on who do I want to spend my time with? We realize that time horizons are shortening. And so it really becomes important to us to spend more time. With less people. And I think this is really interesting. And I think that people who are older really understand this and appreciate this and really look to solidify those relationships. And we know that relationships are one of the core foundational pieces in overall wellness and in longevity and living longer. So those are just a couple of things I wanted to share with you. Now, there are also some other headlines that I thought would be kind of interesting and fun to share at the beginning of the year around caregiver wellness. One came from Fierce Healthcare, which reported on Headspace, which is the mental health program and app that's out there. And they actually partnered or merged with Ginger to form a $3 billion mental health company. Now, this is great news for those of you who are employees, who have employers who are really focused now on a lot of the mental health and emotional health. And we're seeing a lot of, whether it's apps or programs or different things to help alleviate that stress. Well, this is just going to, again, escalate that focus, I think, in the workplace and otherwise. So you can look forward to seeing a lot of benefits from your employers and you should check those out if you haven't seen them because I know they're there. The second thing is, this is for the men in our audience of which I think Our male audience makes up about a third of our listeners, so thank you to all the men out there. But this is for you. So first of all, this is a Cleveland Clinic study of 7 million patients. That's amazing, by the way. I've been involved in several academic research projects and on those teams, and recruiting people like 1,000 people or 2,000 people to be in a study is really tough. Now, there are certain studies that are done where you're just pulling data records so you can get into the thousands on that, but 7 million, woo, that's big. So kudos to the Cleveland Clinic for taking a big look at a lot of people. But here's what I thought was really interesting for the men out there. So if you are older and you're taking Viagra, you know, to kind of get the juices flowing... The men who are taking Viagra have a 69% reduced risk of Alzheimer's later in life. Okay, so two big benefits for you, gentlemen, who are older out there. And I just thought that was kind of a fun one to share with you. And also kind of nice for the women out there, too. And then a couple of listeners actually emailed us at podcast at caregivingclub.com. So thank you for all of our listeners who are sending us emails. And you asked about what apps we like for a variety of different things. But since we're talking about happiness, I'm going to tell you that I really like this app Happify, which is perfect, right? Happify. But it's really based on a lot of really great behavioral science, and it gives you little prompts and things, which I believe in. It's a big part of our Me Time Monday philosophy and program. And so check out Happify because it's a really great app. A couple of my colleagues from United Healthcare way back in the days also worked there, so a little shout out to them. It's a really cool app that you should check out if you're looking for an app on How to promote more happiness in your life. And then let's turn a little bit now to pop culture, as we always do. I've got three great TED Talks for you. Now, what's really fascinating about these TED Talks is that it's really about one is looking backwards at life, one is looking up, and I'll explain that in a minute. And then the next one is looking forward, and all of them have to do with happiness. Okay. So, this first TED Talk is actually. 99-year-old Eddie Yaku, I think I'm saying that right, who was a survivor of the Holocaust. He survived Auschwitz as a very young child. And he talks about that survivor's blueprint for happiness. Now, here's a man who faced the worst of what humans can do to humans, right? And yet, in the darkest of times, he found silver linings. I'm cheering up right now talking about it because it is one of the most inspiring phenomenal TED Talks that I've ever listened to. So, with that endorsement, please go check it out. We have a link on our episode guide page so you can link right to it. It's a Holocaust survivors blueprint for happiness. That's the one that's looking backwards. Now, what's the one that's looking up? Well, this isn't really a TED talk. This is actually a YouTube video, but it's by a really great British word artist called Gary Turk. Now he has 62 million views of this YouTube video, which is pretty phenomenal. And it's called Look Up. And it is all about what we miss in life when we're looking down at our smartphones. We are missing a lot. And this video, uh, first of all, it's so well done and it's so poignant. And it really talks about the life course, being a young person and going all the way through end of life What do you miss if you are looking down? And so instead, we need to look up. This is one you should share with your kids, by the way, because it's a great one for getting off social media and getting off the smartphone and doing that digital detox that we talk a lot about. At the Me Time Monday program. And then the one that is looking forward is Dan Gilbert. Now, in our Me Time Monday wellness hack for this episode, go check it out. It's the at the end of the episode. I talk about Dan Gilbert, he was a researcher at Harvard, his philosophy and theory around effective forecasting for happiness. Now, this is all about how we really suck. At planning our own happiness. you know, We plan for retirement. We plan for other things like home renovation and some of these things. And we dig into those details. We do not plan for happiness and we need to. And that's what Dan talks about in this TED Talk. It's really great. And we really subscribe to his proposal and recommendations around taking five and 10-year increments and looking out at your life five years, 10 years from now, what do you want to do to be happy? Check out our wellness hack because it's going to lead you through how to do that. And then finally, there's a great documentary. So I attended a conference where this filmmaker spoke and his name is Sean Pierre Regis and he created a documentary called Duty Free. We have a link again on the episode page and you can watch it right off their website. He's won a lot of awards at some of the independent film awards that are out there. But it's a really remarkable story about his 75-year-old mother who was an immigrant who raised her two sons on her own. She was a single mom, and she was a cleaning lady. And she was laid off at age 75 with 2 weeks severance. And the devastation that can come at the end of life when you've worked so hard and been so focused and really been purposeful around something and all of a sudden to be adrift. But he talks about how his mom found passion and purpose again and how he helped with that. It's really great. It's a really wonderful documentary that you can watch with your mom, your dad, your whole family, whatever. But it's really inspiring to take a look at this and see how even, again, when things kind of go dark, we can find the light. So those are our pop culture elements for you. Oh, I didn't mention the books. One book I did want to mention is the Blue Zones of Happiness book, which is a book I really love. Dan Buettner has written now a series of books on the Blue Zones science and research that he did about living longer. This one is on happiness. And he talks about pleasure, purpose, and pride. And I'm going to leave it at that as a teaser. We're going to have a link to the book, but it's a really terrific book if you're looking for what are the elements of happiness that maybe I need to get more of in my life. And he explains those three elements and how you can achieve that. So we'll have all those links on our episode guide page. And with that, we're now going to turn to our interview with Joan Nihal, who is the author of happy is the new healthy. I am thrilled to have our guest, Dr. Joan Nihal on the podcast today. She has a wonderful new book, which is called happy is the new healthy. I'm holding it up one of my favorite reads that I've had recently. And Dr. Nihal is a clinical psychologist who specializes in forensic psychology. I was fascinated by that, by the way, because I I watch forensic files here on HLN all the time. And you're focusing on the science of happiness. And we kind of know that happiness has almost become like the holy grail in our society. We're all seeking it but we're not really great at maybe managing it and understanding it. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk to Joan today about all of these things that I know some of you are thinking about. For instance, is happiness a choice or is it something that just happens? Are we more lonely today than we were a decade ago or even five years ago? How is social media changed or impacted our happiness. So Joan is going to answer all those questions for us. And Joan, I'm just so thrilled to have you on Caregiving Club on air. So
1: welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this.
0: Yes, this is going to be a fun discussion and it's going to go by, I know, way too fast.
1: I want to start with some, since you are in gerontology, I want to give you a quote that I came across yesterday by Hockley, a researcher, and I quote, Older adults have become so marginalized and made to feel as though they are no longer productive members of society, which is lonely making in and of itself. Yes, yes. Just throw
0: that at you. No, that is, I love your quotes too throughout the book. And that is such an important quote because I do think that, you know, we have this drop off, whether it's after age 50 or age 65 or whatever, where we don't really plan and we don't really think about the wishes and dreams of being older and the happiness aspect of growing older. So hopefully we're going to have a a great discussion about that. One of the questions I always start with all our guests is where are we talking to you from? Because we talk to people all over the country and even all over the globe. So where are you today?
1: At the moment, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. I was moderating the evolution of psychotherapy. I was one of the moderators. And I fly back to my home, which is Victoria, British Columbia, Canada on Friday.
0: Oh, wonderful. We're, we're so excited to have you. You're you're our first Canadian on the show. So <laughs> we're very thrilled. <laughs> so, Joan, I want to open with, you know, our listeners, most of them, many of them are family caregivers. And you opened your book with a dedication to your mom, to your mother. And you also had this quote that she is sharp in mind, but frail in body. And so Our listeners often struggle with trying to find that happiness during their caregiving journey. Give us a little bit of insight into all of the science and all of the
1: clients that you've helped to manage through that. Okay, just one quick question. Are we talking about the caregiver or are we talking about the client?
0: Let's talk about the family caregiver right now. We're going to delve into the happiness of aging and older adults, but family caregivers are really challenged, right? Because they've got so many balls, they're juggling all these responsibilities. How do you
1: find happiness in the midst of that? Ah, Well, first of all, let's define happiness, shall we? Yes. Yes. So from my perspective, happiness is something we can manufacture not something we acquire. Happiness lies on a continuum, a long line that stretches from a little bit happy to extremely happy. Or, you know, Aristotle, for example, in the fourth century BC talked about happiness as eudaimonia or meaning and purpose of life. If you had that, you're going to be clinically happy. Now, look, at the same time, Zhuangzi in China, in the fourth century BC, was saying, happiness is the absence of the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm.
0: which is fascinating, right? Because we even talk about in the U.S., it's life,
1: liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you're saying, Maybe not. Like, you know, let's think about that for a minute. I'm saying that if you are going to make it your mantra or your goal today, I will be happy. I guarantee you, you will be unhappy. Right. People will wonder if you've just swallowed a bottle of ugly pills because <laughs> it didn't work. And then you see your self-esteem has got that big because, gee, you know, I failed again. That is not the purpose of this. The purpose is to live your life with a goal or a couple of goals that you set for yourself up. In the morning, I tell my clients, why don't you go on the highway to gratitude? And this would be a really nice thing for your caregivers to do. I do it all the time. I go on the highway to gratitude with my cup of coffee. Of course, I must tell you this. Right. Double espresso. It's designed to really wake you up. And I'm there thinking of what are three things that I'm grateful for today? And one of the things that comes up for me usually is are uh, the people in my life whom I'm honored to touch. Mm. That is something I'm so grateful for. And another thing is every day say to myself, okay, what are you going to do for someone else? Mm-hmm. And that for me is my random act of kindness. Like for instance, today I was in the gym because I really do practice what I preach. So I was redistributing the cellulite, if you will, in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? I get a box of chocolates for the people at the front desk. This is at the, the village spa. And then I... Take another box of chocolates for the people who wash our towels, the people who sweep the floors. And that for me was my random act of kindness today. And I felt so darn good doing it. Did I say to myself, okay, Joan, what are you doing for yourself? No, I got an instant. gratification I got something that was a bigger bang for my buck than the 12 or 15 bucks I spent on chocolate. So I'm saying there is something else we can do. When I'm with my cup of coffee in the morning, what am I doing I'm not only really thinking of the highway to gratitude without speeding but I'm thinking of a cup of coffee and I'm savoring it and I'm enjoying every second of it as I look outside because I'm in the desert right now where I live it's pouring rain and horrible but I look outside <laughs> and I'm going oh my word this is beautiful. I took a picture of it today and I sent it to my mom. Aww. So what I do, I savored the moment. And I Instagrammed it, and I sent it to mom. I said, mom, look at this. And she says, you lucky devil. I said, no, I'm an angel. But you get the point. That's savory. Doing something that you really enjoy and then passing it on. And you could pass it on to so many other people. And you know what? I would accuse you of being clinically happy. Then I went to the gym. And that's something else you can do to redistribute, as I say, the cellulite. and not up here. But you know, everything falls. It's called gravity, right? Right. (laughs) Yes, I know only too well. Right, But the caregivers and I understand only too well that everything falls out. And then you know what happens. You go to the gym and get the endorphins going, and then you start feeling pretty darn good, don't you? Yes. Another thing to do is to set yourself up to win. I like winning. I don't know about you girls, but I like to win. <laughs> yes. So I say to myself, okay, Joan, what's your goal for today? And today I thought, oh, I'm going to share this podcast with Sherry. Let me just look at the questions this lady has that <laughs> Maybe will help you, Joan, if you look at that. So I did that. That was my goal, okay? I set myself up with a goal, and it was an achievable goal. So I felt that you know, like 10 feet tall. So that's what we do. If you want to increase your happiness quotient, you got to set yourself up with goals and achieve them because they're realistic and they're small. Dumb it down, I say. Small nice. goals, not the big thing. You're not climbing Kilimanjaro tomorrow. We're just climbing out of bed.
0: And I love that. We talk a lot about just little tiny things that you can do, but I love the fact that you've given pause. You're saying, take that pause in the morning to kind of set up your day with this gratitude. And I love the fact that, you know, if you think about it, caregivers are already practicing a form of happiness because they are giving, right? They are bringing meaning to someone else's life, bringing maybe more meaning into their life. So- there are silver linings in caregiving, even though
1: sometimes I know it's tough and challenging, right? very here's the thing. I was working with a caregiver a couple of months back, and my concern was vicarious traumatization, yeah. which is a fancy term. I know I'd, I'll get out of my shrug language, but it basically means that they were taking on the client's problems, like a sponge, and they were exhausted. And this has happened with this woman, okay, in her 50s. So... When you say yes, caregivers can feel good about what they're doing. I'm saying yes. And please stop and take care of yourself first. As women, we do not do that without feeling the G word, guilt. And if you're a right. Catholic, it's a double like me. Double dose, right. right. So, you know, <laughs> Suckers and punishment. So I say that first thing you got to do is self-soothe, especially during pandemic times. Right. You have to protect yourself first. Do some things that you can say, aha, I look forward to doing this today and I did it. It could be listening to music. It could be go- going for a walk outside in the desert and experiencing awe, the beauty of it all, or having a bubble bath or listening to music or doing something that's self-soothing for you first.
0: Now, I love all this. And you mentioned earlier, Aristotle. Now, when I was studying in gerontology, Aristotle had a philosophy that our personalities were fixed at about age 30, and they didn't really change. And I know there's difference of opinion on that. So when we think about personality, how much does, whether you're an optimist or maybe more of a pessimist, how does that fit in to happiness and finding happiness?
1: I smile because the author of Optimism is a clinical depressive male. Okay. Yes, Seligman. He's a great guy, but he's the first. I mean, he's one of our pioneers in positive psychology. You must know Marty Seligman. Yes. And is the first one to say, and I'm a depressive sort, and I'm learning how to get out of it. If Marty could do it, I say the rest of us can, too, because if you look at the research, it's not just Joan Neholt, but if you look at what Sonia Lubomirsky is saying, she has found what I call the 40% solution. 10%, 10% of our happiness is due to life events, positive or negative. You can become a quadriplegic today, or you can win the lottery. Two things, one positive, one negative. You know what? In a couple of months, you revert to your, your a state of happiness. You go right back to that level. So. What am I saying? I'm saying if 40% is due to our intentional thoughts, choices, and behaviors about the situation, and 10% is due to the life events, the lottery or the cute guy or whatever else, and then you take 50% is due to genetics. Wow, that's hopeful. And not only is it hopeful, but I can prove it to you because I do it with my clients. I teach them to smile. And you know, some of them, I say, look, take this. I love that. So, just so if you're listening
0: to us, I know if you're watching us, you just saw that wonderful act that you put a pen in your teeth and it made you smile automatically. I love it.
1: <laughs> oh, look, you're smiling with me. Okay. you got to excuse my sense of humor. It really no, is.
0: Oh, I love it.
1: <laughs> it's better for me most of the time, but I also laugh at myself. So, it's all good. Look, when you smile, like you're smiling right now, a real smile, a real one, right? Yes. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I love this. I love this conversation. <laughs> happened, Terry? I just proved it to you. We tricked our silly brains. Right. It tells us now we're happy because we're smiling and it's contagious. If you look at social contagion theory, you know darn well that people who, no matter what you say, they're going to be miserable. You're right. Me- I've been afflicted with quite a few of those. And then you have other people, no matter what happens, they're going to smile and they have a positive spin on it. Right. 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 Do you know, have you ever heard of the Matthew effect? Oh, yes. But tell us a little bit about that. The Matthew effect comes with the good old gospel. You know, the Lord will give you abundantly, right? Yes, right. Well, I'm waiting for my abundance. I don't know. About you. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> So the abundance is if you're going to focus, as James says, my experience is what I choose to attend to. So if you focus on the good things in your life, you prime your brain to be happy. See that? Right. You're focusing and you're deliberately making those choices. Right. So really we should think about it in terms of training
0: our brain. We are training ourselves how to focus more on that positivity and that good side. One thing you brought up in the book, and I find this fascinating. I want you to explain for our listeners, because again, we talked about self-care, caregivers needing to take care of themselves. And the big thing is, how do I find the time? And you had a client that you wrote about in the book and you talked about time affluence.
1: Tell us about that. That was fascinating. I'm actually guilty of it too. I practice what I preach. Here's how it goes. You have a certain amount of money, Let's use Christmas and Hanukkah. This is a good example, right? Let's be talking. Okay. So I chose the other day to go to Nordstrom and buy a gift. Right. And I chose to have it gift wrapped there. Now, am I lazy? No. I was going to use the extra time to read one of my journals, you know? But it was so nice to see it all gift wrapped. It looks so beautiful. And I didn't. So what am I saying? I'm using my money to buy time to do other things with it. I was never made to be Susie Homemaker. I don't know which woman was. Yeah, me was. neither. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. So I'm quite grateful to the housekeeper who comes and zooms and cleans and makes everything look spotless. And then I pay her and then I get an extra boost of time. That's right. time affluence, using my money to do something like go and see an art exhibit, do something that's more important. That's the affluence that I have noticed that a lot of people are moving towards. In Canada, for instance, the government says, if you want to work a four-day week, but compress your hours, you can do it. Get into work at seven, leave at five, or whatever. Then you get a three-day weekend. And that's the time affluence. is so neat. That you can do something with. And another thing to think of with time affluence is what I call maintenance. One of the things I consider maintenance, like, I don't know about you, I don't think about brushing my teeth. I don't think which arm goes into here. Just health. automatic. <laughs> The so automaticity should also occur when you get a positive addiction. When you do something that you would practice it for 21 days with me, and you'll really find it difficult. And once you finish that, it becomes automatic. It's going to be like brushing your teeth. For example, take me for an example. Exercise, cardiovascular exercise. I'm going to do that every day. I might do 25 minutes. I can do an hour, depending on how much time I have. But I'm flexible like a rubber doll. I don't have to say, okay, every day thou shalt do one hour. And if you don't, then you are a lazy slob. I might only manage to do 15 minutes and that's okay. I'll say to myself, at least you know, Joan, you're not addicted to to exercise.
0: Right. Well, and I love that philosophy because what you're saying is it's more important to just have whatever small amount you can in your life of those positive things. I remember reading about BJ Fogg and tiny habits. And what he said is, you know, just do one push up at the wall a day. That's it. Just one push up that you go over to the wall and you just do that push up, which seems like what's that really doing for me? But the point is, is that you're starting to accumulate then these habits
1: that are good for us. And then the other thing that you want to do that's equally important is at the end of the day, what I get people to do is to. Make a note of what went well today and why. That's great. Post-pandemic, it's so important. What went well for me today and why? You do that for a month and you incorporate it as part of the repertoire of the new you because happiness is a verb. It's what you do.
0: Right. Well, and we're kicking off the new year with this particular podcast. I think that's a great... Okay. So you told us get up in the morning, have your coffee, get that kick of espresso And talk about gratitude, what makes you feel good about your life or what is positive in your life and end your day with a positive statement. So you're kind
1: of bookending the day, which is great. You know, what's also great. I got in through the back door. I slid in the fancy word agency. You are the agent of your misfortune or your fortune. All of a sudden the person becomes empowered. You can't tell someone who is unhappy, oh, well, be happy. But you can't say, hey, what, am I to, what went wrong for you today? It reminds me of, the story of a of a widow. And, you know, she was isolated in her home. She didn't want to go out or anything. Her life was in shambles. I went to visit her once. And I said to her, you know, I see you have a lot of African violets around. And she said, yeah. I said, how would it be for you to just look at the Edmonton Journal, see the, obits, the obituaries, and take one, just a recent widow? So I got her out of her house, going to do something for some other woman in distress. And a month later, she said to me, I don't need you. I said, I know that. You need <laughs> you need a me. This is good. I love that.
0: And you're so right. It's not that we shouldn't say to people, oh, you need to be happier. It's more about let's drill that down, right? I want to shift gears a little bit because I mentioned to you when we were going to talk about in some of the scientific studies that are out there, they talk about the U-shape curve of happiness through life, where when we're in our early twenties, we are maybe at probably one of our happiest points as we start to age and take on more responsibility. And we're in middle age, we're probably at the lowest point in our forties, maybe early fifties. And then we go back on the upswing, like kind of like your smile. And in fact, people who are at their oldest in their seventies and eighties, and maybe even beyond are actually the happiest they've been in their whole lives. Talk to us about this kind of U-shaped curve
1: and what's important about that, that we should know. Well, two things. First of all, some people are violently upset with the youth shame of such. And they, think they force the horse radish. And other people say it's a great thing. From my perspective as a clinician, I think it's a great paradigm to use because it is true that, I mean, let's talk about the male midlife crisis. What's that all about, right? Right. Well, I know who's happy there. Those, you know, divorce attorneys are real happy. <laughs> they like that. <laughs> And then, you know, well, never mind. but <laughs> I was going to go somewhere else, but let's stay on track. Especially, <laughs> but you know, just stop for a moment and think about it. What happens at 18? Actually, the researchers, it's 18, Jerry. At 18. 18, you know, okay. Really you're happiest at your 18. Why? Because the world is your oyster. We're just starting off in life. Don't you remember? I was there once. Oh gosh, that was a long time ago, but I was so happy then. You too? Right. You
0: listen, carefree care. I would say I was carefree and having fun, happy. I don't know. I'm not sure yet. You know, I'm still experiencing where's going to be my happiest point
1: throughout my life, but go ahead. So 18 is good. You have the excitement. You're looking forward to your birthday Distance is measured from distance from birth. And you're looking forward to Hanukkah or Christmas and this, that, and the other. And you have no problems at 18 knowing what's right and what's wrong. Your parents mightn't agree with you, but you know, what's right and what's wrong. Right. <laughs> You've got that arrogance that comes from youth and a life untested. Right. Okay? Then as you move forward, remember that in your 30s in particular and 40s, those are the times in your life when you're at your optimum level of developing your paper chase, your career and everything else. What are you doing then? You are comparing yourself to other people. And ah. I compare at your own risk because social media is airbrushed Nonsense. So, from my point of view, when you start comparing like that, of course, you always look "Eh, not as good as I would like to look, correct? Right. That is your arch enemy number one. One of the enemies or the villains to happiness right there is comparing to someone else. I teach people to compare to yourself. Right. And I do today, and how can I improve that tomorrow for myself? Yeah.
0: I don't want to stop you because I want to talk about the end of life as well, but the social media conversation is so important. And we're seeing a lot of surveys and studies that are showing us that younger generations maybe aren't as happy or might be feeling more lonely or not feeling as good about themselves, have emotional health issues. And what do you think social media, is that playing a big role in it? You call it the social media scorecard, by the way. And I love the fact of don't compare yourself, but that's all we do on social media, right?
1: (laughs) Well, it depends on if we go on social media. I don't. And that's really awful of me to admit to you, but it's also true. I have a team that does that for me, LinkedIn right. or Instagram and all of that stuff. But let's just stop for a moment and look at it. I think we can't definitively say it's negative or positive, but what I will say is that young people like to compare. I just said that in their 20s and 30s and 40s. And when you compare to that, you feel you're not as good as the next person. And the incidence of depression, cyberbullying, and suicide are high with the group, okay? So we have to be really vigilant as to what we are showing them. If they're gonna suffer from FOMO, what exactly is this young insecure person saying? There is insecurity. I mean, someone said to me recently, Would you like to be in your 20s again? And I said, Definitely not. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I was, you know, so insecure about body and this, that, and the other. I don't know about you, but you know. Oh, yes, yes. And also the bad hair.
0: You know, just oh. I went through a bad hair
1: phase. <laughs> Some of us don't get over that one, but the point <laughs> is that's, that's true. <laughs> that's why the hairdressers love us. But, but again, back in here, when you hit your 50s, and this is the point I think I need to underscore, you stop comparing because the, a different word comes in. Instead of the C word, I like going with letters. My mother plays gravel, You go with the A word, acceptance. You start accepting. This is a nest egg. I'm at my prime right now. And I can accept my bumps, my wrinkles, myself, and where I've reached in life. And I can choose finally to feel happy about it. Mm. With that comes wisdom, and you're released from the shackles, the prison of self doubt. Right. In your 60s. Yes. Because, you know, look at the Japanese culture, for instance. What do they do that's so different than ours? The Asian culture is multi generational.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the
1: elderly are considered wise people
0: talk about that because you started out by talking about how we do still have this ageism in our society, particularly, I think, in more the West. Why is it that we don't uplift our older, you know, as you mentioned, Asian culture, North American, Indian culture, they all look to their older people in their society as those sage-wise adults that they look up to. Why don't we do that in Western culture?
1: Let's look at the rise of nursing homes. Let's look at the fact that we have institutionalized a lot of the elderly. And the bullying that happens with the elderly, it's not necessarily with the people in the institutions, but rather their own adult children. Mm, So there's that piece that we need to look at the other piece we need to look at is something we can take a page out of what Teresa May did in Britain. She created the Ministry of Loneliness. It was hilarious because she actually did it. And this was before the pandemic. And what we want to do with the elderly that is really great is if we can get them to interact with younger people. Right. Young, and the younger people can teach them IT skills and they can teach knitting skills or storytelling. And then it becomes a symbiotic relationship like that. Yes. Right?
0: Yes. Yes. And I was reading, I don't know if they've formalized it, but I know they were doing some pilot studies over there in the UK with things like the postal service. They were starting to help train the postal workers to almost have the social service side of what they're doing and talk to older adults that they know might be living alone. So there's a daily
1: contact, right? The other thing they've done that's really great is you remember... The great American dream is when I grow up, I'm going to retire. Then I don't have to work anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's the great pause because people are not aware of how they have to prepare themselves psychologically for retirement. So we go back to the elderly and they can feel rudderless without a meaning and purpose in life. So what they did in the UK is they hired them to work in stores, you know, different things. And so they keep working and they feel better because they're doing something that makes sense to them. You can't just sit down and let them go to pot. They've got to be engaged. The engagement and the social contact, what we call collective effervescence, makes people happy. Right. And I love this thought that you touched upon.
0: So having passion, having purpose in life, having meaning in life. You know, we talk about things like kindness, but how often do we really practice that? I mean, is that something that you see out there that people are actively practicing kindness on a daily basis?
1: You know, with the pandemic, surprisingly enough, People have been practicing more kindness than ever before. So, this is what happened in Canada. I don't know for you guys, but people started hoarding toilet paper. Yes, yes. we saw a lot of that. <laughs> now, I'm married to a guy who I suspect is a hoarder anyway, pre <laughs> pandemic, because my garage had. Oh my goodness, Costco, the best customer, you know, tons and tons of toilet paper. So I was crossing it my neighbors. You guys see toilet paper? Come over here. I got so much and I'm so glad I finally get garage space. This is good, you know? So I noticed that during the pandemic, people were doing a lot more kindness to each other, smiling. Here's a bowl of soup. Let me help you with your groceries. Let me take them upstairs for you. How can I help? I've yeah. a lot of that. In fact, one of my patients was saying to me, and this is interesting. She said, thanks to the pandemic, she checked back in. She was thinking of checking out from the marriage, you know, and with the pandemic, she had her husband at home with her, with the daughter homeschooling, and he took an active role in their lives uh, and that back together and took her off the wine. That's wonderful. You know, I love stories like that because,
0: even in the, the midst of a huge crisis like we had globally with you know, COVID-19, you can find these little silver linings. You can find these things that bring you back together. And I think ultimately that's what we return to that, right? We return to the basics, which are
1: family, home, taking care of each other as neighbors. You know, you hit on a very important point, Sherry, something that's very near and dear to my heart, the village. We have lost the village. Yes. The pandemic made us go back to what, hap- what do happy people do? They invest in satisfying, I underscore the word, satisfying social relationships. And don't tell me because of the pandemic and isolation, we can't Zoom someone in or Zoom someone out and pick. We can choose now. Who do we want to have in our lives? Right.
0: So... We talked about loneliness, but then the pandemic possibly brought us back together. Loneliness, talk a little bit about, because I don't know if our listeners fully understand the difference between social isolation
1: and being lonely, because we know they're different. So tell us what that difference is. Well, yes. First of all, let's talk about loneliness and what exactly are we talking about? We're talking about a feeling of disconnect. And I've felt it at times in my life, and I'm sure you have as well. I know as a child, I mentioned it in my book in boarding school, I didn't fit in. So that can lead you into a feeling of a disconnect. Now, most of us go through life changes. And during life changes, we might temporarily feel that disconnect, that loneliness. That You're around a lot of people who are well-wishers, but I'm by myself. That's one form of loneliness. The other form of loneliness is, so that's reactive loneliness. That's what I call it. So we put into that little box, if you will, all of life changes, geographical change of residence, change of location of work, change, change will create that. The other form of loneliness is chronic. Chronic loneliness is the one in which you have absolutely no resources to make those connections, the social connections that will make you feel connected. Mm. All right. You have two kinds of loneliness. Clark Moustakis is a Greek poet who talked about the difference between loneliness and creative solitude. And creative solitude is something that we all, I have to have that every day in my life. I must have some time just for me. Some people call it mindfulness meditation. I just call it me. I just need, give me 10, 20 minutes, just. We all need that, and that is healthy. When you have that feeling of disconnect continuing, however, it could lead to depression, obesity, cardiac issues, right? self-esteem issues, anxiety, you name it. The whole ball of wax can come in there.
0: Right. I love that you focused on me time. We talk a lot about me time on the podcast, and it is important to find those moments that are just for yourself, that give you that time of reflection or pause or whatever it is that kind of gives you that soothing, you know, a little bit of nurturing, nourishing your soul. I can't believe that we're already running Up against our time here, but I feel like we touched on so many wonderful things. Is there anything else? There was so much, by the way, in your book. And I I just want to encourage listeners to really tap into this book because there's so many great lessons. You talk a lot about some of your clients that you've helped through different times, but so many great little lessons that you give. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you feel is really important for our audience
1: to know? Yes. Positive addictions. And choice. You, remember we started off when you said to me, well, how much is nature versus nurture? And I'm saying we need to look at the phenomenon of choice. The greatest weapon we have against stress is our ability to choose one thought over another. What did the pandemic leave us with? Languishing, which is the new area of concern of this year. People are suffering from burnout, lack of motivation, Numbness, wanting to engage and wanting to retreat. Another thing that we've noticed that you need you we all, including myself, need to be aware of is the Cave syndrome. Namely, it's a reluctance to engage in pre-pandemic activities that involve socializing because of fear of contamination. You know, and it could be indoor dining and it can even range to going back to the workforce. So those are some little nuggets I thought I would throw at you that you need to be aware of. Those are really important. And as you said, we're going to continue to have
0: challenges, whether it's natural disasters, whether it's things like pandemics, whether it's things within our own families or our work life or whatever, but we have to know how to have that resiliency and find that happiness. And I think you've given us some really great great things to think about. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to, I'm going to hold it up one more time for anyone who's watching us on YouTube, but happy is the new healthy. We're going to have a link to Joan's book on our website and also more information about Joan. Joan, thank you for being with us today. It's just been such a pleasure. And I love, I love talking to you. We're going to have to have you back because
1: there's so much more that we can cover that we weren't able to. You know, one of the two things that I'm very interested in is how do we get people back to happiness post-COVID? One of the things that I am pushing people to do is I'm getting them to look at our psychological immune system and post-traumatic growth. Great. Looking at the research of Tadeshi and Calhoun, there is, you can get post-traumatic growth. And that's something I, would, at some point I'd love for your listeners to listen to me talk about it because it's inspirational.
0: I love that. And you know, we will have you back because I would love you to talk about that. I know it touches upon elements of spirituality and again, positivity, but I think it's a whole conversation, right? In and of itself. And I, so we will definitely have you back, Joan. It's been great to connect with you. And again, thank you so much for your brilliance and your book and for sharing with our listeners today. So for our well home design segment, I want to go back to what we were talking about earlier, which were the happiest countries across the globe. And as we noted, Denmark always ranks one, two, or three in those annual happiness surveys that Gallup does. And I think there's a reason for this. And one concept that the Danish people really embrace in their culture is something called "huga," which is H-Y-G-G-E, huga. And it really literally translates to mean coziness at home. And the Danes are really great at doing this unplugging or the digital detox that we always talk about which is so important i think for us to find a little bit of space and breathing and just relaxing and enjoying things that are more natural to our lives and what i mean by that is for instance you know sitting by a warm fire and just listening to the crackle of the logs you know in the fire or maybe looking out a beautiful window and watching the snow fall since it's winter right now or as we get into spring watching all the spring blooms that are coming about maybe it's you know cooking with with family or friends and just enjoying a good meal that you make at home or playing a board game, or if you do a, a solo version of huga maybe it's just cozying up with a good book, but it's all about kind of unplugging from the digital noise pollution in our lives and really enjoying our homes. And this brings me back to well-home design. You know, it's so important for us to understand that our environments, and we're spending so much time at home, Even after two years, I think most of us are still curled up at home a lot, working from home, maybe still homeschooling kids and all these different things. But our home environments are really important to our overall emotional and mental health as well as our physical health. And so a couple of things that I just wanted to note for you in this section is, first of all, I've written an article on all of the 2022 home design trends that are happening. And as always, what I do is I take a look at all the articles that are out there, all the experts, the interior designers, the realtors, And what are they trend spotting? And then I curate that into a list that's very specific to caregivers and what your wellness needs are for a well-home design for yourself, but also to create that well-home design for older parents or older loved ones who are trying to age in place and stay in their homes as long as possible. So check that article out. We're going to have a link to it on our episode guide page, so you can take a look at that. But also when we talk about huga and coziness and home, we know that there's costs involved, right? So cozy can be costly. And one of the things that I think caregivers often overlook are really these costs of care. We wait until the crisis happens, and then we're not really as prepared as we can be. And we don't realize the costs that are involved. And our parents may not have prepared as well for the types of things they're looking for in long-term care. Let me give you a couple examples. So first of all, ARP does an annual survey, or I'm sorry, not an annual survey, but they've done several surveys over the last few years about the cost of caregiving and what caregivers are spending. And what they've come up with is that on average, caregivers spend about $7,000 out of pocket on care related costs. Now, a lot of this is because we think that Medicare kind of covers everything and it does not. So whether it's groceries or whether it's help with pet care or even certain medical devices that are not covered. that Medicare benefit, those are all out-of-pocket costs and a lot of caregivers are contributing to helping to purchase some of these things for their older loved ones. The other thing that you need to know is that there are a couple of financial products or financial tools that are out there. So one is a reverse mortgage. The other one would be, of course, long-term care insurance. But keep in mind that while these can be advantageous and helpful in providing certain finances and funding for long-term care needs, only 1% of people over the age of 65 have a reverse mortgage, and only about 11% of older adults have long-term care insurance. So this is not going to be the silver bullet, the panacea. This isn't going to take care of everything that you think it might. And the other thing you need to know is when it comes to these costs, the housing costs that we have in our lives, whether it's rent, whether it's a mortgage or whether it's living in a long-term care assisted living community, that is always going to be the biggest expense that we have in our lives. And so really preparing well for what that means later in life is important. Let me give you some examples. So if you have home care, it may be costing you maybe I don't know, 50000 upwards to $70,000 a year to have somebody come in to care for your loved one or for your parents about eight hours a day. But that leaves 16 hours where they're not having somebody who's really in the home helping them out And that means that that's either going to fall on you, or you now have to double or triple the cost that I just gave you annually to cover those extra hours. And a lot of people who are trying to keep their loved ones with Alzheimer's and dementia at home are also spending even more money because that level of care is so specialized, it is more costly. Now, the alternative, of course, is to look into something like senior living. So that would be an assisted living community, or if your loved one has higher levels of care needs and health needs, it might even be skilled nursing or nursing home care. And those costs, again, can average between anywhere from seventy dollars to $120,000 a year. Now, when you think that, most older adults usually wind up staying in assisted living or nursing homes anywhere between three to five years on average, but it can be upwards of 10 years. This is why we talk about having about a million dollars that you're going to assign to those long-term care housing costs is really critical for older adults because you can see how that money goes really fast. Now, if your loved one doesn't have that type of savings, this is where the financial burden is really falling on our family caregivers and causing a lot of problems in our own financial planning for our own future, whether it's just general retirement or whether it's our own long-term care. So these are all the conversations that families need to have. Just knowing a little bit about these costs is really key. And one of the greatest experts out there is Cindy Hensel, who we're going to talk to next. Wiser, her organization just announced a caregiver financial hub really great tool to use. It would be probably the first place I would suggest going to check things out. But of course, there's other great resources as well. We have on our episode guide page, some links to the National Council on Aging Benefits Checkup page, which is really great. Also, the Department of Health and Human Services has the long term care clearinghouse, where you can look up information about long term care and these FAQs and information and links from there. Also, there are several other resources that just help out with financial planning or financial management for your loved one. And I'm going to have those links on the website podcast page as well. So, you know, lots of good information, lots of both critical financial planning information, but also. When we're looking at renovating homes or upcycling or just creating better wellness within our homes for ourselves and our older loved ones, check out that Trends article because it's going to give you some really great insights as to how to do this and in some ways how to do it on a budget. So with that, let's go to our interview with Cindy Hansel. So welcome, everybody. You know, it's January for this episode, and we're talking about financial Wellness Month. And one of the things that we know is that women certainly earn less than men. And on the flip side, we also live a little bit longer, on average, about three to four years. And we also know that women are about 60% of the family caregivers who are caring for older parents or grandparents. So right when women are in their most powerful peak earning years, caregiving comes calling. And there's a lot of costs associated with caregiving that a lot of families don't really plan for, don't understand. And this can create a lot of challenges and choices. And, you know, we've been reading a lot about the great resignation. One of the things that's so vital about that news is that there are more women who are leaving the workforce and that's either voluntarily or they're actually losing their jobs. And this is creating a a true financial crisis, particularly for women and their retirement. But help is on the way because we have with us today Cindy Hunsell, who is the president of WISER, which stands for the Women's Institute for Secure Retirement, She is an attorney and a national expert in financial retirement planning. She also does a lot of work with the U.S. Administration on Aging, heading up the National Resource Center for Women in Retirement. And Money Magazine named her one of its 40 money heroes for all of her work. So, Cindy, we're so thrilled to have you on the podcast today to help us all figure this financial picture out. So welcome. Well, thanks so much, Sherry. It's great to see you and be here with you. Yes, we've known each other, I know, a lot of years. And yep. I've always listened really intently to all of the advice that you have. And hopefully, I'm following it, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it all works out. Right. But the first question, Cindy, that I always ask all of our guests is where are we talking to you from today? Where are you? I'm in Washington, D.C. Wonderful. So, we've had a couple of people from Washington. So, it's great to have these national insights as to what's going on. So, let's just launch right into it. You know, Wiser recently announced your caregiver financial hub. So, tell us a little bit about the work that Wiser does. And then, specifically, what is this new caregiver financial hub that you've announced? Right. Well, Wiser works
2: to give women opportunities to improve their finances and to make sure that they're thinking about their finances. And that's been a huge issue for us for as long as we've been, you know, in business here. And so one of the things that sort of prompted us from the beginning to work on caregiving issues is the fact that so many women were leaving their jobs even back then, like in 2000. And what was happening to them was all of a sudden they realized their mom dies. They left a job. They left a benefit on the table, pension, whatever. just sort of pick up and go help you know do what you need to do and then without any thinking about what is this going to mean for the rest of my life because there are not even 20 years ago there weren't a lot of jobs that came with, you know, great benefits. You know, employers were beginning to cut benefits for different reasons because of the longevity issues really. Like we're all living longer and people don't realize that if you live longer, what are you going to need? You're going to need more money for retirement because it just means you're going to have to be paying bills for a longer period of time and everything just like What we're going through today because of the pandemic, the inflation issue, right? You know, it's sort of like now everything is costing more. And, you know, we're all sort of shocked when we see the stickers on things and we remember, like, what? I just paid like, you know, a lot less for this. Well, that was before the pandemic, dear. You know, so you have to pay attention to all of this. And one of the things I always say, because, you know, people are always surprised, and I say, well, have you ever sat around a table with a bunch of people and everyone said, all my bills went down. My taxes were less last year. I'm just amazed at how like the cost of everything just goes down, down, down. That never happens. Yeah. I'd like to have that conversation, but you're right. (laughs) Exactly. But it just never does. And so the big issue that the P word, the planning, the preparation is really what we all have to be Thinking of, and you know, sometimes it just takes like a big, you know, bang to make us pay attention, and the pandemic could serve as that as well. But many of the women that I I started off talking about realized that there weren't jobs for them, they're now in their early 60s, and what are they going to do to take care of themselves? And so, in a way, for me, and I'll just share a little experience that I had myself, my dad died three months before my mom, and I was always really close to my dad. We both took care of my mother. We were caregivers for her. And now here he is. He's passing before her. And what the first thing he said to me when I got there, like when we knew you know, that it was going to happen imminently, he took my hand and he said, you do not give up your job you do not give up your job. He said that to me. He said, you know, I was just starting in a new career. I had just gone to law school and he wanted to make sure he said, I actually helped them find the best help you could find. And I'm going to talk about that. That's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm so adamant about all these issues, the elder care locator. And so when both of my parents had passed away, one of the neighbors were coming by as I was clearing out things down in Florida. And I heard them speaking and they didn't know I was there. I was down, you know, like with boxes and everything. And one of them said, oh, she did a great job with her parents. You know, she had really good people, but she's from Washington. She knows people. (laughs) And so I always tell that story. I laugh because what it is, is no, she knew the phone number for the elder care locator. That's what I knew. Right. And I knew where to find the help? I mean, without that, I would have been really
0: in a pickle myself. Well, and I I think that's the tough thing, Cindy, that there are actually really great resources out there like WISER, like the Elder Care Locator, but we don't know about them, right? I mean, we might stumble upon it. And just for everybody who's listening, just really quickly, the Elder Care Locator, tell us that's the local area agencies on aging, but tell us a little bit about that so people know what that service is.
2: Right. Well, They know what's going on in the neighborhood. I mean, I always I ask people all the time, you know, like when we're out talking, you know, have you heard of the elder care locator? And even as the generations go past Aging advocates don't know about it either, you know, if they're not like looped in or, you know, like paying attention to the same issues we're we're talking about. And for a lot of people, you don't pay attention until you, all of a sudden it like hits you over the you now have, you know, you're taking care of your aunt. You're her executor. She's in Arizona. You're in, you know, like Maine or something. It's like if you have that information, it means you can call someone. And I'll tell another quick story during the pandemic, because what they do is they know who has all the services for the senior people. And that's just a gift to be able to plug into that or talk to someone who can help you right away. And even if you decide like you want to do something different because they've given you five options, you've got the five options because of calling the, the caregiver, the financial
0: What's so great is it's a free service, of course, that's offered by the government, Department of Health and Human Services, and the Administration for Community Living, I think. But it's free. And also, as you said, it's local. You know, you and I work a lot on national programs and national issues and statistics, but when it comes to caregiving, it's local, you know, if you're long distance, you need somebody in your mom or your aunt or whatever, where they live. So it's really great. Going back to what we were talking about with family caregivers. I think that the thing that I know I've seen is there's just not good education about what long-term care costs. And also the fact that Medicare does not cover long-term care. So talk a little bit about the things that you've seen with a lot of the women that you're helping to advise and guide, what are the things they don't know that they should know? Well, I mean, one of the big things
2: is, and it's always astounding to me is, you're right, they don't know about Medicare and that it doesn't pay for long-term care. And as each generation comes along, they don't know either. So, you know, as we got their mothers and their aunts and people like that to know some of this, it's like they may be gone or they're not in the loop. And so now you have the new younger person who never heard of any of this. You know, they don't even they barely know what Medicare does. But the other really amazing thing is that because of the way the the systems that we use are with Social Security, you retire And you start collecting a check and you don't have to pay anything to get that check. With Medicare, you have to pay a premium. And so people, even even I find people that do education for the states or counselors, and they'll turn around and say to me, wait a minute, wait a minute that you don't have to pay. And I go, yes, they take the premium that you have to pay. So now you're 65, you're going to be taking you know, Medicare or your mom is or whomever. And all of a sudden, you have to have these premiums taken out. And then they take it out of your Social Security benefit, which makes it even worse. So if you think you're getting, say, $1,000 a month, and all of a sudden, you know, you're losing 10% of that for your premium. The premiums are going up to $170 now, I think as the right here in January, that's what they will be. And so people just have no idea. And that really puts you behind already. When you start, you haven't even done anything other than just signing up. So people have to understand
0: that. Well, and there was a statistic I think I found on your website that talked about, is it 58% of women over 65 live in poverty? because they are just relying on... Single women living alone, too. That's the other big piece of it. Yeah, Which, you know, when we have our moms who are living longer, that is probably going to happen to a lot of us. Just what you said, I think it's so almost alarming, the little nuances that we don't know. So what is Wiser doing with your caregiver financial hub? And what are the things that our listeners can do to kind of educate them more about all this? What are the steps that they should be taking? Right. Well, I mean,
2: one of the things is that it's a great refresher to find out. These are some of the things you need to know. What we wanted to try to do was because caregivers are so pressed for times and and especially if they're working and they're taking care and you know, all these things just pop up. It's not like you have three months to plan for the doctor's visit. It's all of a sudden something happens. You have to get a doctor's visit. And so, What do you do about all of these things? And how do you find out? And so we're trying to put together, you know, and we'll keep adding to it, the financial caregiver portal and calling it the hub because you're going to need all that information and one of the other things that caregivers seem to never realize either is that when you are taking over the finances of another person there are a lot of legal ramifications to that especially if you're you know have a sibling you know who lives in another part of the country and they don't like what you're doing and so there are things that every caregiver can do to also protect themselves and so we want them to know about that so it's like taking
0: care of someone else's finances you know Right. All the things that you have to pay attention to. You're so right. So often there's legal implications to the financial side of things. So, right. And the other thing is that the financial, this was
2: even alerting me not that long ago. I mean, not like I've been doing this for a long time, but I never thought of it in this way. And that is that, you know, when you're, doing the financial caregiving, it just doesn't end one day. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, the person will pass. And that may be two years, like straightening out all of those different aspects of what you have to do. If there's a trust or if there's going through probate, one place on the site, like we have the list, which I just, someone was desperate for this. And I said, well, we have a list. And so we sent the list. And then one one of the other recent things that we heard was from someone that I know really well whose dad passed. And she said, you know, my dad worked for the postal system. What happens to his pension? Because I've called a couple of places. Nobody knows where to tell me to go. Somebody should have like the steps you need to take. So I said, well, we have one of those documents and I hope it incorporates everything that will help you with your dad, but at least it will give you some phone numbers. Right and somebody will help you. But along the way, what was happening was that she didn't even have like the phone numbers of where to call. Like, who do you call in the postal system? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) right.
0: Who's going to answer the phone? Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. So the booklet, which a lot of people have used, and it actually won an award for being, you know, like a great resource for older folks is going it alone. It's for people who've lost their spouse or even a daughter who's lost, maybe, you know, like you've got to figure it all out. What is there? And you don't even know that. Like maybe there's a lost pension and you can go to the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation and they'll look, you know, they have databases they can look up for you. Because the harder thing in the world that we live in is that so many companies, they merge with other companies. Right. So, you know, the going it alone, you know, actually has steps that you can take and to find even the harder things that you need to find, because once you're doing this caregiving, financial caregiving, it's going to go on. You know, you can't just say, oh, I'm done with that. Right. No, you've got all of this to do.
0: Well and you know your point is so well taken because we know that care needs change during your caregiving journey so the the cost today might look different 10 years down the road but you're right i don't think we think about after the caregiving right. ends and that is such an important piece of this there's a lot of different tools out there and one of the things i know that we get a lot of questions about is long term care insurance you know is it really beneficial? Is it something that your loved one should have? We know that only 11% of older adults have long-term care insurance. What are your thoughts on things like long-term care insurance or reverse mortgages. You know, we see a lot of TV ads for those. What should caregivers know about those things?
2: I mean, I think they're all, you know, you have to find out what's going to work for you. And we recently contacted John Cutler. I don't know if you're familiar with him. And he was responsible for actually making the move to get the federal government to offer a long-term care. And so he's actually reviewed all the pieces that we have on the new hub. So that's great. Very helpful. Yes. And also I think what's important about it is that the newer products that are on the market are just different than the old ones. Like the old ones You know, I first worked at a place where they had long-term care insurance, and I signed up in my 40s. And so I've been paying that premium, but it's pretty low because they sort of did it over your lifetime. Now they don't do that anymore. You know what I mean? So there are different ways to. I know friends now who are buying long-term care programs, and they're not buying the same ones that we bought 20 years ago. So
0: right, and of course, if you wait, they're a lot more expensive. I think the other thing that was shocking to some people I've talked to is that the benefits don't don't last forever. There is a a finite number of years that you can tap into those benefits and then they're gone.
2: No. And it's true because I, tell this story about my dad who was really, I mean, it was amazing how easy he made it for me. And I was so grateful. And it was back in a time he died 30 years ago when it wasn't like people talked about this at all. And he had a person at the bank for me to go to. She had the power of attorney. She had everything I needed. Barbara, I'll never forget her. You know, She was wonderful. And then the other thing was that I like to say that the best laid plans never follow through. Like my dad would have been really upset to know that he died in July and he had turned 70. And then when I looked for his life insurance policy for my mom, it had ended, his employer policy ended at age 70. It was in the tiny, tiny print. Nobody knew that. And then a couple of months later, his company also canceled the health insurance for retirees. And so he would have, he just would have been so upset that those were two big things because my my mother died so close to the time when he did, you know it ultimately didn't matter. I mean, he would have liked if those benefits were there, he would have liked that I would have had them even for myself or you know, for my mom or whatever. But the point is that the best laid plans you look at all of a sudden, he really worked hard to make it all work, and you still have things that go
0: out of your control. and I think that's the scary thing, right? We always say plan ahead start early, but as you said, you know, 20 years or 30 years from now, it could be a very different picture, which is kind of brings me to something else. And that is, what are your thoughts around financial advisors? Only about 29% of Americans work with a financial advisor. A lot of people think, well, you have to have, you know, a lot of assets, a lot of wealth to really engage with an advisor. I'd like your thoughts on that. And then also I was at a conference this week and they had a panel on financial planning and they were talking about how woefully undereducated a lot of financial advisors are when it comes to things like long-term care and caregiving. So talk about this whole relationship with financial advisors and what we need to know. Well, I think in some ways
2: it's going to get easier. And the reason I say that, and you know, one of the big problems is that there are very few women, there aren't many advisors, but only like a fourth of them are even women. And so women are always complaining about that they want another woman. I mean, I think you get advice from friends or if somebody knows a financial planner in your area and then you go after that. And so many are retiring, just like a lot of programs where, you know, this is the age where all these boomers, you know, you think the women don't want to go back to work if they're, you know, have to do caregiving at home. But. The problem is that it's the same with the financial planners. You know, they're in their 60s or you know early 70s and thinking, you know, they've had enough too. Right. <laughs> you know, they're they're going to retire. But I I think that there are more counseling projects that are available, and there's more money management things that are around. People don't know about them either. You know, I'm saying we're we're trying to put all those things together. You know, like as part of this hub, but those things will help in a way. But I am going to tell you one quick story. So my cousin's a nurse. She was offered an early, you know, retirement package in January before the pandemic started. And she wanted to take care of her two granddaughters. You know, she was really excited about that. She was in, you know, like maybe 67 or so. And so, you know, she's done with all of that. And then her husband brings home this financial planner, who's the grandson of somebody he knows. And he starts talking to her and he's telling her that, I know you're going to want to take care of your children. And I, you know, he's saying all these things to her. And she said, I had an annuity from my package. I had a pension from the hospital that was, she had like 3 guaranteed income pieces so she didn't want to buy another product for that she wanted to use you know what she had and she said and my children I've been taking care of my children. They're in their forties, right? i right. are taking care of them anymore. When we're gone, they, they're they going to have two properties to sell. That will be enough for them. Right. <laughs> and so it really did make me laugh. And then, you know, she was saying it's because this guy that's, he didn't know her. He's new and he's just trying to get clients and her husband's trying to get him a client, her. You know? Right, right. <laughs> she'll, she'll do all these things. And she said, you know, he didn't have the experience that. And so I think the thing is, you can maybe find that experience, but you need to be aware that that person is not all-knowing and you know whatever they tell you to do. And so many times I've had here in DC, women that are really smart and they've listened to somebody telling them to take all their money out of the, they work for the government maybe for eight years or 10 years, you know, in their twenties and early thirties, like a lot of people come here and they want to do that. And so you're lucky if you're in the thrift savings plan, you know, because they have really good products. It's they say quietly that it's like the largest 401k, you know, in in the world. And so, you know, they have low fees as one of the best assets about staying in that plan. But these guys come along and then say to them, well, you can take your money out because of course, then they want to invest it for you. And so, you know, one woman who's a good friend of mine, her husband kept saying to her, why would you fall for that? Why didn't you leave three hundred dollars there? You know, because once you come out, you
0: can't get it back in. Oh, and see, those are the things they might not even know that they probably did. Advisors, yeah, but still, so, I and I think that's so well said because you have to think about financial advisors want to sell, as you said, financial products. They want to make a commission. Maybe a lot of them make commission off of what they're investing for you, but do they really understand what you're going to be facing? When I interviewed you for my book a few years ago, you also had a really great quote that I just love. And you talked about how financial advisors need to learn how to speak Venus. And it was kind of that Venus versus Mars because They don't really know how to advise and talk to women, particularly widows, right? Right, right.
2: A lot of times, what happens is the widows get so annoyed that they fire the planner right after you know they lose their spouse, and so. And I actually talk to a lot of these planners. You know, like some of the companies that that employ them will come to us and say, you know, and I talk about caregiving and, and just say, these are the things you need to know. These are the top of mind for women. And I say, if you help them prepare and we need everybody to be good at this, you know what I mean? And the last thing we need is like, no, don't go to any financial planner. No, we need financial planners. Right. We need more of them. We need to encourage more young people to become planners and, and figure that out.
0: Yep. Well, my my big mantra now, I went back and got my master's in gerontology. And I just think that everybody needs to have somebody who understands aging and the caregiving journey that can advise you. So you would have a little understanding and education. Speaking of that, I know you do a lot of work with employers and I was really encouraged to see the statistic that there was an uptick in employers offering financial education. Yeah. Financial wellness benefits. What are your thoughts around, you know, a caregiver who is still employed and working and tapping into those financial wellness benefits? What are your thoughts?
2: Right. I mean, I think we'll see, you know, the programs will keep improving, but employers, I think are committed to it because they've seen through the pandemic, what people are asking for, you know, they need help. And also people don't have emergency funds, you know, that whole survey that they do every couple of years, the Federal Reserve, you know, on how, depending on how they ask the question, but it comes up to about, you know, almost half of the workforce doesn't have the four hundred dollars for a, you know, an emergency bill that comes along, which comes along for all of us, or or a way to pay for it that isn't on a credit card. They don't even have enough money on the credit card. So that's one thing to get people that are listening to you today, and it's like the new year, and people always overspend. I can tell you that one time when I first started really saving, it came at a time when I thought, I have no money, I have to do this and this and this. And everything. And then I, you know, I was walking along and I thought, you know, there will never be like the blue sky day where the clouds are all, you know, just lovely and saying, you know, today's the day you can now start saving. You have to save when you need to save. And this is one of those days. If you don't do it now, when are you ever going to do it? Right. Exactly. Even if it's a little bit, right. I mean, that's it. I mean, just a little bit, you know what I mean? You can start off and you forget that you, you know, you even put that in there. And one of the things we've been telling people, like even one way to start is like you could be buying bonds now because those I bonds, which are tied to inflation, they're paying 715 interest rate okay which is, so i mean it's just that it doesn't cost you anything to sign up you can buy the smaller bonds you don't have to buy the $1000 bond you can buy the you know right. the $25 or whatever it's just you know something we have that on our website too thewiserwomen.org. and so i think it's just a good thing for people to think about hey you know what she's right you know i spend way too much money you know you forget you're on these credit cards and it's like
0: Oh, that's right. I remember I bought that. <laughs> yeah, I bought that. <laughs> yeah. That's what I say every month when I get my bill. Well, you know, we could talk forever, but all this information is so terrific. So any last thoughts, any last advice for our listeners? Well, I think
2: if you're doing caregiving, you have to realize that it's a double job because it's, you have to pay attention to your own retirement and make sure that you're taking care of yourself. The out-of-pocket costs, I don't know if you've seen that, are over $7,000 on average for caregivers. You know, you're going to the, the pharmacy, you're doing, you know, you're picking up all these things that the person needs. And then you're not even thinking about that, that, you know, it adds up over a year. And then a lot of times people say, well, I don't have any extra money left over. Well, how about looking over here? And if you have a sibling or somebody else in the family, maybe who's not, you know, doing what you're doing all the time, they can pitch in to help fray those costs. And think about
0: that. If you could put that 7,000 into savings, or as you said, bonds or something, I mean, that's what we're doing as caregivers is kind of sacrificing a little bit of our future to pay for those costs today. Well, Cindy, it's been terrific talking to you. Tell us again, the website where people can find the caregiver financial hub and other information. Right. It's wiserwomen.org.
2: And then there are three buttons, they're purple buttons on the homepage where you can find the hub, the financial caregiving hub. And hopefully, and if people have suggestions, since you know we're we're just starting this and we want it to be really inclusive and keep people from not having to skip to 15 different websites to find, you know, one little piece that they need. That's the purpose because caregivers don't have
0: time for all of that. It's like I need to find this now, you know? Yes. And that's why I love you called it at the hub because you really did pull everything together. I also like that you separated it. So it's, you know, caregiving for your spouse or partner, caregiving for your older parents or grandparents and caregiving for your children. So it really kind of covers caregiving across the lifespan for everybody.
2: Right. Well, thank you. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, Sydney, it's great talking to you again. Thank you so much. We're just thrilled to have you on the show and really great advice for Financial Wellness Month. Okay. And great to be with you, Sherry. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye. Welcome to our Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. Our theme for 2022 is Live Colorfully. And we kick off the new year with our Happiness Hacks using yellow. Numerous surveys in 2020 and 2021 showed family caregivers are struggling with emotional wellness. Yellow is the color we have associated with emotional wellness and happiness in our seven elements of the Me Time Monday Wellness Edit. So Pantone, which is the famous color science company, has psychologists who research colors and their meaning in our society. After more than 30 years of research on the color yellow, the first words that consistently come to mind when people see this color are sunshine warmth, cheer, happiness, and sometimes even playfulness. These are all words everyone, but especially caregivers who may be struggling with emotional health issues, need more of in our lives. Following is our list of seven yellow wellness hacks for happiness and better health. The first is buy yourself yellow flowers it will bring a smile to your face according to psychology today flowers boost our release of dopamine which triggers reward signals in our brain flowers are tied to our ancient brains when food was more abundant in the spring and when flowers were blooming seeing flowers meant food sources would be easier to find and this signaled less stress more pleasure and increased happiness and when it comes to the color of the flowers, think yellow. The use of yellow to cheer people up can be traced back to London in 1917 during World War I, A colorist psychologist believed that the right color scheme in a hospital room could cure soldiers who were shell-shocked, and he identified a mellow yellow as the perfect color. Nurses also encouraged loved ones to bring or send yellow flowers to patients to help hasten their recovery time and lessen perceived levels of pain and feelings of isolation. Next, we say a little lemon gives you zest. Most cooks know that lemon zest perks up recipes, but putting lemon in water or tea also has several health benefits. First of all, the juice from one lemon provides 20 to 30% of your daily vitamin C intake a day, which helps boost immunity to fight colds and viruses. Second, lemon also aids in digestion and it may increase hydration since it perks up plain water. Next, we say wearing yellow can boost your mood. A yellow sweater, jacket, scarf, or rain boots are not just for children. Studies show wearing yellow can boost a sense of playfulness at any age. A researcher at Pantone said, give any child a box of crayons, and they reach for the yellow crayon first. Yellow is associated with the sun, which wakes us up, keeps us warm, and feeds our crops. When the sun is out, children know they can go out and play. Maybe we can take a cue from the kids and wear a little yellow and create our own playday. Next, when it comes to nutrition, we offer you three recommendations from our sunshine diet. First, vitamin D, which is known as the sunshine vitamin, is necessary for the absorption of calcium, which plays a key role in maintaining bone strength. However, up to 40% of U.S. residents are deficient in vitamin D. Eat foods high in vitamin D, such as salmon, sardines, tuna, egg yolks, orange juice, oatmeal, and milk, or if you are lactose intolerant, try a lactose-free milk instead. Number two is eat food kissed by the sun, fruits, berries, vegetables, and nuts. And keep the skin on, it's actually good for you. Eat during sunlight hours is our third tip what we call farmer's hours. It is the most efficient way to maintain or lose weight. Our metabolism is more efficient during these daylight hours since it is tied to our circadian rhythms, which are our sleep-wake cycles. Eating after dark makes the body think it must stay awake since it takes a few hours to completely digest the food. Also, eating during an eight to 10 hour window means less time to consume more calories. Our next tip is try yellow tinted glasses. You know, January happens to be National Eye Care Month. So staying with our theme of yellow, we recommend yellow tinted glasses that block almost twice the amount of blue light emissions as other type of eye strain glasses. Blue light emissions come from all the digital technology and artificial light we use in our daily lives. While blue light blocking glasses are recommended when doing a lot of close up screen work on your computer or laptop or your mobile smartphone. Clear lenses block a maximum of 40% of blue light, while yellow lenses block 75% of blue light. What if there was a happy pill you could take every single day? The reality is happiness is in our hands and it is not a pill. Just the simple act of smiling can lift your mood and it is contagious. If you smile at someone, they often smile back. Also, science shows smiling can reduce pain by releasing endorphins, which are natural painkillers. Smiling also increases serotonin levels that elevate our mood. And finally, our last tip is for January Financial Wellness Month, and we offer you a plan for happiness called effective forecasting. This was created by Dan Gilbert, a Harvard psychologist, and Dr. Gilbert posited the theory that most people are really bad at planning their own happiness. He wrote, change is one of the only constants in our lives. And amazingly, human beings at any age constantly underestimate how much their personalities and their dreams change decade by decade, well into later life. These personality changes bedevil decision-making in really important ways we believe dr gilbert was right so taking a cue from his effective forecasting method we recommend creating plans in five and ten year increments think about where you want to be and what you'll be doing these lists are often aspirational and hopeful and will automatically create what we call positivity psychology this helps alleviate or put into context today's challenges by providing a little hopeful future forward outlook The rationalization is that things can get better. We hope you enjoyed this Me Time Monday wellness hack. Each episode of our Caregiving Club on-air podcast will feature a new Me Time Monday wellness hack. And check out more great wellness articles from my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for a wonderful life, where you can find some of these articles at caregivingclub.com. We hope you enjoyed this Caregiving Club on-air podcast. Subscribe to future episodes at caregivingclub.com podcast page or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Listeners can email us with questions or comments at podcast at caregivingclub.com. I'm Sherry Snelling, and I'm wishing you a colorful year. Take care and stay well.